Please take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Esther. I've been looking at this uh, little book for a few weeks now. Esther chapter 3 is where we are this evening. We'll consider all 15 verses of it. A few of you expressed some, uh, <clears throat> I guess, surprise at the revelations of, of last week and the way that we understood um, Mordecai uh, to, to be portrayed there. Um, and I think it will become maybe clear to us uh, how the Lord uses Mordecai as time goes on, perhaps a little bit tonight. A little bit tonight. Let's read now as an act of worship Esther chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws." So that, if, uh, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews." And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, do to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language." It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, 
and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And again, we ask that you would bless it, strengthen our hearts by it, instruct us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. In Aesop's fables, he tells a story about the wolf and the lamb. And the scene is set up for us that the wolf is drinking from a stream and he's upstream from the lamb. So the water flows past the wolf and down to the lamb. And the the wolf looks down at the lamb and he's overcome with anger and he says to the lamb, you muddied my waters. Well, the lamb looked up to the wolf and he said, I could not possibly have muddied the waters. You're upstream from me and the water flows down to me. And the wolf goes on, he says, well, it doesn't matter. You called me names. And the lamb says, no, I didn't call you any names at all. And the wolf said, well, your father must have called me names. The lamb says, no, my father didn't call you any names. We barely even know you. And as the wolf is chomping down on the lamb, the little lamb cried out, any excuse will do for a tyrant. The Jews of Esther's day were living under a soft form of tyranny. They weren't persecuted per se. They could go about their daily business, but at the same time, they weren't free. And we find they also weren't safe as in Act 3, the sinister Haman will seek their destruction as a people. Notice in verses 1 through 6 of Esther chapter 3, the promotion of Haman, and we notice Mordecai's resistance, an interesting development. We begin with, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. After what things? Well, the narrator is connecting us to all the events that have gone on before. Esther is now the queen. She has taken the place of Vashti. She's in a place of influence, so to speak, in a place of power. And not only that, but Mordecai is a hero. Remember that we ended this, this, the second act, a curtain was going down as Mordecai had saved the king's life. Uh, go back up with me for just a moment. We'll look at verse 23 of chapter 2. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, that is the plot against the king's life that Mordecai discovered, the men, Bigthon and Teresh, were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, and we were left there, weren't we, thinking something else should have taken place. Wasn't, wasn't Mordecai due some sort of honor, some sort of recognition? It never came. Instead, is it any coincidence that now our narrator puts together these next words, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted not Mordecai. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, 
the Agagite. Literally, he made him great. He promoted him. He has become the second in command. He advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. This was a very now important ruler. And he wasn't a eunuch like Big Thun and Teresh. He wasn't a man who was re- replacing these men. Uh, he had a wife, we will learn in chapter 5 and verse 10. Instead, no, he's been made like Daniel. Remember in Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, uh, Daniel was elevated by Darius and made over all of the governors of the provinces. His importance is displayed with royal splendor. The narrator records for us at verse 2 that all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. All the servants bowed down. Literally, they, they would, in their culture, if you met a man who was a higher rank from you, it was your responsibility to prostrate yourself on the ground. And many of these men did that. His throne was above all the officials. We're given a little bit of background information about Haman. And one of the things that we've learned from this is that is important information. Remember, back in chapter 2, we were given some background information about Mordecai. We learned there that his great-great-great-great-grandfather was Saul. He was a descendant of the line of Saul, and that's important. Here we learn that this man, Haman, is an Agagite, a son of Hamadatha. This is an important detail. And one of the ways that we're shown it's an important detail is only of these two characters are we given any sort of genealogical information. Hamadatha. Um, Haman, the son of Hamadatha. What is an Agagite? Well, you won't find the term anywhere but in the book of Esther. It comes from the root Agag. Maybe that term sounds a little bit familiar to you. Agag is found in many places in the scripture. Agag was the king of a people called the Amalekites. Why are the Amalekites significant to us? Well, because the Amalekites were one of the first enemies of the Jews after they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. You remember the whole scene with her and Aaron when they came on either side of Moses to lift up his hands. There, in Exodus chapter 17, they were fighting with the Amalekites. And one thing that is said there in Exodus chapter 17 and verses 14 and 15 is this. God said, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. These people were one of the bitterest enemies of Israel in their existence. There's another important aspect of this. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel 
chapter 15. When we get to 1 Samuel 15, Saul is the king. And they are at war again with the Amalekites. And God commanded Saul in verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Listen, this is hearkening all the way back to the Exodus and the scene in Exodus 17. Now, these are the instructions from God to Saul. Go and strike Amalek and devote them to destruction. All that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep. Well, what happened? Saul didn't do it. He killed the women and the children, but he spared the king whose name was Agag. Instead of chopping Agag to pieces, Saul disobediently spared his life. So that we read in chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15, 17, And Samuel said to Saul, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And we finish in verse 32. Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Agag, Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Why is this event significant in the life of Israel? Because it was this disobedience on the part of Saul that cost him the kingdom. Because Saul refused to kill Agag, God took the kingdom from him and gave it to David. Is it any coincidence then that here in the book of Esther we find these two nemesis coming back together the alignment of Mordecai with Saul and of Haman with Agag indicates that we are about to observe a recap of the whole drama. This, in the book of Esther, is one of the first indicators to us, listen, that these events are not random. 
now our minds are starting to turn and say, well, these connections are there. I see Saul and I see Agag. Mordecai and Haman representing these bitter enemies in Israel. Maybe all of these events are not meaningless. Even though we have been presented with an Israel who are absent their divine king. Remember, we looked at Ezekiel 10 and 11 and 12. The Yahweh departed from them. And yet what we begin to see is his favor is still there. Notice, going back to Esther chapter 3, notice Haman's response as he learned that Mordecai would not bow down to him. He was, like Ahasuerus in chapter 1, verse 10, filled with fury. He was filled with fury. We recall Ahasuerus' response to Vashti in chapter 1, verse 2. Haman is now the one who is filled with venom, filled with fury at Mordecai's response. And so we begin to note here the, the theme that is being repeated over and over and over in these three chapters of Esther. Resistance of and compliance to authorities. Vashti resisted. Resisted the authority. Resisted, re, re, resisted a rash command. And she faced the consequences of her resistance. On the other hand, Mordecai and Esther went along in chapter 2, another rash command, even though in chapter 2, to resist that command would have been appropriate. Did you notice though here strangely, Mordecai has developed a conscience before he let his own daughter go into the palace to become a concubine in the palace of a pagan king, here, for some reason, suddenly he developed courage. He won't bow down. He, he resists bowing down. Did he realize that his mistake before in the preceding act of this divine drama, did he realize that it was a mistake? that he should have stood up for his daughter? Perhaps that he believed he's, he should have been the one elevated instead of Haman. Maybe what we're observing here is the jealousy of Mordecai. I should be in that place. I'm the one who should be uh, elevated. I'm the one to whom everyone should be bowing down. And perhaps that's the right view. We haven't had a very good presentation of Mordecai so far. Or do we look with favor upon Mordecai? Perhaps he's reached a turning point. Perhaps all of these events, the elevation of Haman is the one thing that finally opened his eyes to see the futility of pursuing honor in the empire. Notice in verse 4, Surely, we are to notice this. 
And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. Do you see the play on words there? Mordecai, the one who would not bow, they go before Haman to see if the words would stand or fall. Notice, for he had told them he was a Jew. And just in case you didn't catch it the first time, it is repeated for you in verse 5. So they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Why is that so striking? Well, because one of the explicit instructions that Mordecai gave to Esther was what? Do not tell them you are a Jew. And the whole picture was given to us as though Mordecai himself is trying to ingratiate himself to the Persian Empire to become a Persian and to leave behind his Jewish heritage. Well, now perhaps he has learned the futility of trying to please the empire and he tells them what? I'm a Jew. Does this remind you of a different story? Earlier in redemptive history, there was a man raised in a palace not his own. He had been saved and sent to that palace to be instructed to learn. And there came a day when this particular man was walking through the streets of his city. And he saw one of his own people being beaten. And he took the man who was beating, doing the beating, he took him and he killed him and buried his body. That man was Moses. His turning point, the turning point for Moses, was the day that he killed an Egyptian man who was beating a Hebrew slave. Perhaps it was that moment in Moses' life as well where he realized that trying to please the empire and walking that line was never going to be sufficient. In fact, we read in Hebrews 11, 24-25, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We aren't told if this is that turning point for Mordecai, but we are given, like I've told you before, little breadcrumbs that might lead us to that conclusion. He has boldly proclaimed now to Haman, I am a Jew. I serve the Jewish God. And I will recognize myself with the Jewish people. Well, what's the consequence for this rebellious action? We learn in verses 7 to 11. Haman gathered his men together in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus' reign. So we learn here that as roughly five years have passed, Esther has been sitting as queen, which we are to understand as a perfunctory role. There's no real sort of honor tied to it. She is at the king's whim. 
she is a plaything. But she's been there for five years. In his fury, Haman and his companions sat down to determine the fate of the Jews by using pure. Notice in verse 7, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. The casting of pure, this becomes a central aspect of the book of Esther. In some consideration, this is the whole reason that the book of Esther exists is to justify the Jewish celebration of Purim, which comes back to this term, lots, as it can also be translated. It was customary in certain situations, especially in the ancient East, for them to take dye and throw them on the ground in an, in an attempt to understand God's will. Remember that God gave to Israel a, a pair of of stones, we believe, called the Urim and the Thummim. And these two stones were housed in the priest's breastplate. He kept them there, literally, we learn uh, in Exodus chapter 28, above his heart. It is perhaps these lots that they cast where God told the tribes where they would live in Canaan. By casting lots... Haman indicates a belief in a predetermined fate. That there is some sort of deity who is working things out and we need to consult with him to determine the best time to kill the Jews. He apparently assumes that his plan in general is pleasing to this God. But he understands that this God has determined the right date and he would know it. Although he is certain of God's blessing, obviously God must be pleased with this, Haman sought to obtain a Hazuerus blessing by lies and bribery. By lies and bribery. Notice in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury." Now, Ahasuerus is wheeling and dealing here before King Ahasuerus. I'm sorry, Haman is wheeling and dealing before uh, King Ahasuerus. He tells him a half-truth. Did you notice that? Their laws are different from every other people. Well, in some respects, but not in every respect. And then he proceeds to tell Ahasuerus a total lie. And they do not keep the king's laws. Now, do you wonder, like I do, if Haman had read chapter 2 of Esther? If he had seen Esther and Mordecai submitting to this pagan law? Certainly they did. 
And so you know that it is a total lie. But Haman does not only offer Ahasuerus lies. Notice that he promised him 10,000 talents of silver. Now in order to bring 10,000 talents of silver, he would have brought wagon loads. 333 tons of silver to make 10,000 talents. In other words, Haman is financing an all-out war. This is no small effort. Haman is amassing a war chest to completely obliterate the Jewish people And we remember that it doesn't surprise the righteous people when the wicked stop at nothing to bring about their hurt. Haman is totally committed to his plan of destruction. Imagine it. One man has provoked him. All of the officials bowed down. All of the the officials kowtowed to him. It is one man who has provoked his anger to annihilate this people. And we remember that lawlessness was one of the charges brought against Christ Himself. The one who kept the law perfectly. And therefore, to us, Ahasuerus and Haman represent godless men whose only consideration is self. You notice Ahasuerus does no work to validate these charges. He does no investigation. Is this true? Do you have 10,000 talents of silver? These are totally self-interested men. Verses 12 to 15 show us that the plan is in motion. The language of the edict we find is sealed with the king's signet ring. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. The order is clear, isn't it? Destroy the people. Don't just destroy the people. Kill the people. Don't just kill the people. Annihilate the people. And in case you are confused, kill the women, kill the children, and take all of their goods for yourself. This annihilation, according to the determination of the lots, was to take place some 11 months later. Haman is willing to sit and stew and wait for his destruction, for the fulfillment of his blood lust. The decree itself sounds almost like a party invitation. Look at verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready that day. Mark it on your calendar. 
The day of the Jews' destruction is coming. Everybody make yourself ready. And the third act of Esther closes just as the previous two acts did. Notice verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. As, as oblivious men, Ahasuerus and Haman sat down to drink. But notice that they've given no thought to how this entire plan will affect their people. No thought. As they were sitting down to eat and drink, what they did not realize or perhaps didn't care is their plan had thrown the entire city into confusion. These are not Jews who are living by themselves off in cloisters somewhere. The Jews had, had, had engrafted themselves into society. Mordecai himself was, was some sort of counselor. He had access to the citadel in Susa. He was a man who went into the very inner circle. He could get word to Esther there. All of the Jews had engrafted themselves into society. When the people were called upon to annihilate them now, they're not just annihilating some people over there, but their co-workers, the people that they visit with in the market. And these foolish men have no clue or no care. But I want you to notice a very important detail. Did you happen to notice when the plan was announced? Go back with me to verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Significant? Only in this way. That on the 14th day of the first month, all of the Jews would celebrate Passover. This edict went out, consider this, went out to all of the empire on Passover. In a subtle way, you and I are told from the very beginning what the end of this story will be. Think of the irony of Haman making his plans to destroy the Jews and sending them out on the very day when they would commemorate God's protection against annihilation. For those of you who love foreshadowing, you ought to treasure this part. Go back and notice with me Haman's words in chapter 3, verse 8. He said something very interesting. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. There's, 
nothing good about these Jewish people. You don't get anything from them. And remember, at this point, no one knows that Esther was a Jew. That was still a secret knowledge. So this was not true for Ahasuerus, but it's not true. It, it is true for God. He, what profit is it to God to tolerate you and me? He needs nothing from us. He does not stand to gain anything from us. Yet not only did He create us by His own free will, He also chose to redeem us through the blood of His eternal Son. And what profit does He stand to gain? Haman earned the reverence and awe of the other princes merely by his title. Christ has earned your reverence and all in that he made you and sustains you and that even though you can, he stands to gain no profit from you, he took your form and died for you when you were still a sinner. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your infinite kindness. We thank you for your providential protection for your people. We, we see even in small hints so far in this precious book of Esther that even though your people are adulterers, even though they have in many ways aligned themselves with Persia, you have not forgotten them. And in fact, you've told us in a very subtle way that you will still be their Redeemer. And we're reminded from this, Father, that, that you've not redeemed us. You did not send a Redeemer. You did not send the Son of David, the one greater than Saul, because it was any profit to you. There is no reason save from your mere free grace that you should tolerate us at all. Lord, were you to obliterate us, were you to destroy us, to kill us, to annihilate us, it would be no loss to you. None. So Father, we are overwhelmed by your grace. Overwhelmed by your grace that you would redeem the profitless. And we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.